Okay, welcome everyone. Today we're going to talk about the future of mobility and transportation. And to help me discuss this topic, I'm joined by Mark Seeger, who is the CEO of Glideway. So welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you, Bernard. Good morning. It's so lovely to have you with us. So where are you joining us from today? Uh, lovely and sunny Brisbane, California, which is just south of San Francisco. So we're in the Silicon Valley Bay Area. Very good, very good. And it's, it's sunny there at the moment. It is, unusually. So it's a nice okay. day. Yes, yeah, it's, it's raining here in London today. <laughs> oh, lucky. We need a lot of rain here. <laughs> yeah. This topic is super exciting. What problems are you seeing with the current transportation system? Why do we need to change it? What are the challenges? Yeah, I mean, look, I appreciate the question. And it, we can come at this from so many angles. So let me just take a few the first and most obvious one is traffic jams. I think we can all relate to that. I know you yourself in London can certainly relate to that. I believe uh, average speeds are four to seven kilometers per hour across the city. Um, here in the Bay Area, where, where I live, uh, going 20 to 30 miles can easily take up to two hours just because traffic congestion is a real, real problem. And it's not just an experiential problem. I mean, traffic congestion can be soul crushing for all of us, mm. uh, regardless of the vehicle that you're in. But employers here and in other cities and countries around the world, they literally can't get their employees to work in urban environments on time. And so some companies are actually staggering start times from very early to late morning because they literally can't get their employees to work on time. And so you've got one problem of a heavy reliance on roads where the capacity of roads or the road system to manage the demand is faltering, meaning more people want to use the road than the roads can handle, ergo you get traffic congestion. So that's sort of one problem of it. Um, the other problem is the climate crisis, and it is an absolute crisis just getting worse and getting worse faster. And in the United States and in many countries, a majority of our emissions that, that make the climate crisis work come from the very cars we were just talking about being stuck in traffic. So you have a completely unsustainable road-based transportation system mm -hmm. But, you know, human ingenuity has attempted to solve this for the last, let's call it 150 to 200 years. We've had a solution to the capacity problem of how do you manage commuting hour demand because we all more or less wake up at the same time and more or less come home at the same time during the week. You know, how do you solve that problem of moving that large volume of people in a short amount of time in a repeatable fashion? And, and actually, we've only ever come up with one real technical solution to that problem, and that's rail technology or, or trains, so subways and, and uh, you know, various different forms of, of rail technology. And rail technology does a great job at precisely that. It can move huge volumes of people fairly quickly. But the problem with trains is that they're physically very, very big. So they're just hard to carve out a, a 10 to 15 meter wide railway roadway right railway for trains in an urban environment it's just difficult to do that people live there um, underground is not that much easier particularly with rising sea levels by the way or groundwater levels as well but just in general digging under a city is not easy but really it's actually not just about that it's about two other aspects as well um, in many countries particularly here in the united states and, and i regret i have to say this um, the experience of using rail transit, public transit, the subway in New York, or pick your example, is so bad mm. uh, as an experience that people choose to be stuck in traffic mm. rather than taking the train if they have it available. So you have an experiential user experience problem, if you will. 
um, or even a safety problem, uh, indeed, in some countries, particularly here as well. Europe, not so much. In certain parts of Asia, it, trains are pretty good, but it's definitely not uniform. But you have an economic problem as well. And the economic problem is actually, uh, from my perspective, really at the heart of how we would change this. And the economic problem is, again, bifurcated into two layers. Trains are horrifically expensive to build. So you have just a high sticker price, if you want to think of it that way. In the US here in California, it's over $1 billion, $1.3 billion per mile of train track to build it. I mean, though, though, we have a scientific term for that kind of number. It's bonkers crazy. I mean, <laughs> is it so expensive, you just can't afford to build a lot. So that's one part of the problem. Economics of uh, building things that are big and heavy, it's just hard to do and it's expensive. But the other problem is the cost to operate a train system. We call that operational cost, right? And you can break that down into how many dollars do I have to spend to move one person one mile, right? Sort of your baseline operational cost. And trains, because of their size and the way they work and the, the train stations underground, they cost multiple times more to operate than you ever collect as revenue by selling a ticket. And that means that the taxpayer, me or, or you, if you were to live here, have to subsidize the remainder of the gap between the actual cost and the amount we collect from selling a ticket. And in many places in the US, the ratio of how much do we collect versus how much we have to subsidize is one to five. Hmm. New York is barely 85%, uh, excuse me, barely 15% cost recovery. 85% of the New York, I'm just using that as an example, the New York subway cost to move you is paid by the taxpayer. In California, a $5 train ticket is subsidized with nearly $20 per person per ride of taxpayer subsidy. So anyway, the point is when you have economics that are negative and costs that are in the billions of dollars per mile, there's just a limit to how much train you can build or how much service you can provide. Ultimately, this is a service, right? And so we have this problem of roads don't, they can't move enough people. Uh, they're too congested. The experience is terrible. And, and we just can't build more roads to solve the problem. We need a technology base, but the one technology we have, which is well over a century old, is economically unsustainable, never mind the physical size of it, and it divides communities and all the other issues of it. So then you say, well, gosh, what can we do? And for the last, let's call it 10 years, maybe a little bit less, uh, there's been sort of two discussions of, well, what about autonomous vehicles, right? What if we took the human driver out of the car and put in a computer? The idea being computers are more reliable, but also more accurate. And so we can drive up efficiency of road utilization, which is entirely true. Um, two problems with that. One, they don't exist yet, <laughs> but they're coming. At least I believe they are. But two, the capacity, the bottlenecks to road capacity are mostly infrastructure-based and not vehicle-based. What I mean by that is the infrastructure of the road paradigm limits its capacity. It has nothing to do with whether you and I are driving a car or a computer is. And I'll give you just one simple example, a pedestrian crossing. London is full of them. So is New York. So is my town here. You have one at every city block or every other city block. And the way we do it now is if someone wants to cross the road, you stop the flow of traffic in all directions for a while until someone has finished crossing the road. And if you do that every city block, your capacity, the number of people per lane per hour you can move just drops and drops and drops. And that's just one example of many infrastructure bottlenecks to road capacity meaning that the autonomous vehicle, while have, having many advantages, will not solve the fundamental problem of traffic jams. If we, you and I can afford a vehicle with a bed in it, we may have a better experience being stuck in traffic, but the economics and, and the throughput 
and societal needs of moving more people just isn't solved. And so we're in this sort of world of roads are great for certain things, but the fact that they're congested limits economic, the economy. It limits your access to affordable housing. It limits your access to employment. It limits access to social mobility and all these other things that require the movement of labor and goods. That's what grows an economy is stymied by the limitations of roads in most urban environments. And rail solves it, but kind of sort of technically, if you can fit it in your environment and trains are lines and people don't live on lines, they live in neighborhoods, so you have a bit of an accessibility problem, but the economics just limit how much train you can build. I'll give you an example, by the way, of all the cities on earth that are of a size and a density, population density, that would require what you and I might call a mass transit system, like a train system. How many cities as a percentage do you think even have at least one train system, Bernard? What would you think? 10? Close, 4%. Wow. Less, less than 200 cities out of about 4,500 cities on earth even have at least one train system. That means most of the world's cities do not. And think of Jakarta, Indonesia. Uh, I used to live there. Think of, um, pick your city where you just have gridlock, New York, London even, you have gridlock, but you've got trains there, but just not enough. And in many cities where you have no trains, you just can't move and your economy can't grow. So anyway, that's kind of the world we live in. We need new things to solve. Uh, yeah, you've, you've very, very nicely outlined many very serious problems, starting with climate change being the biggest, in my opinion, to lots of inconvenience. So how do we solve this? What do you propose and, and how could this make our transportation system better? I think the opportunity and the excitement around solving this problem, even a little bit, is can be so positively impactful. It's first of all just really exciting. Um, the, the if you just doubled the number of cities on Earth that could be relieved from some form of traffic congestion from four percent to eight percent, or as you suggested, ten percent, you're affecting the lives of hundreds of millions of people. So the opportunity space is right to say nothing of uh, dampening the climate crisis. Mm. The opportunity, therefore, is big. So how does one solve it? There are many different ways. It is certainly technological, and I believe it is experiential. And so let me explain both. Let me start with the easy one, the experiential. The challenge we have before us, whatever the technical solutions are, it is a human behavior that we need to change. I need to convince you to get out of your car if you have one, if you're lucky enough to afford one, or your Uber if that's what, how you get to work. I need to convince you to take something else. And that's just hard to do. Changing behavior is hard. So we have to think of this in, in, a, in a service quality context. You don't really think of service quality when you think of the New York MTA, the, the subway there, or many other train systems, because it's sort of the least common denominator and the user experience kind of goes out the window. But that's because it's so expensive to operate that we can't afford to even think about that. So I think we have to look at a, at a user experience value proposition of the service we're uh, theoretically going to provide and make it better than what you have today. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know people like on-demand services, right? Cars are effectively on-demand. Ubers are largely on-demand. Nobody likes pre-scheduling, rushing to meet that train schedule, or what if the train is, or the bus is delayed and so on and so forth. So on-demand is clearly uh, just where we default to as part of the value proposition stack. Secondly, private rides. This is a safety issue, a privacy issue, a personal issue, a productive issue. I don't wanna share a vehicle with other people. I wanna be able to be on a phone call by myself. 
Um, and, and so privacy, private vehicles, private rides, again, it mirrors what people are doing in cars, right? There's a reason people are stuck in traffic in their cars when they, if and when they have alternatives is because the experience is really good. So you've got on-demand natures, you've got uh, private rides, and then there's one more that I think is really important is getting really close to point to point, as in pick me up where I am and drop me off where I wanna go and none of this interchanges or having to walk to a train station or from a train station or, so point to point is a thing and let's get rid of traffic and let's get rid of or traffic congestion because I don't wanna be stuck in traffic and let's get rid of parking. You can start to see how you can craft the user experience where people say, you know, if the price was right and I had those, some of those or all of those value propositions, I might change my behavior. All right, now let's think of the technology. This is where things get really interesting. Now I am an engineer at heart, so forgive me, I'm gonna geek out a little bit. <laughs> the last 200 years of transportation technology, planes, trains, buses, ships, are all based on a paradigm that was invented and still left over a legacy from the industrial revolution. It's this idea of aggregation. Let's take one big vehicle, bus, train, cram it full of people, and then roll it down the street or the train tracks and stop at every stop. And what you're doing is, yes, your costs are big because you have a big vehicle on big roads, big infrastructure, but at least you're spreading it out over many, many heads. That's an aggregated model. Factories back in the olden days had one big steam engine to run all the lathes and the saws and the sewing machines, right? That's the idea of aggregation. The problem with aggregation is that it only economically kind of works if it is fully loaded with people. But that's not the case most of the time. People are at work or sleeping or whatever. You have commuting hours. It's sort of two hours in the morning and maybe two or three hours in the evening where you have peak demand. That's when people are going to and from home. But during the day, most people are at their office and at night, people are at home sleeping. So, so your economics are completely horrific most of the time in an aggregated model. Well, what does disaggregation look like? Disaggregation is rather than one big vehicle with 50 people in it or, or whatever, or 300 if it's a train, you give every person their own vehicle and it's on demand. Well, now that's what cars are, right? But cars have infrastructure bottlenecks that limit capacity. So how do we solve this? Turns out that if you take the model of a railway system, which is having your own exclusive road, railroad, where you've removed all the bottlenecks to capacity, called the exclusive right of way, and on that, rather than having big, heavy trains, you deploy a fleet of little tiny vehicles, one vehicle for every person or every party traveling. If you could orchestrate that very large fleet of small vehicles versus a very small fleet of very large vehicles, you could control every vehicle very carefully in an orchestrated way. Maybe the way we control air traffic control, right? You have air traffic controllers controlling all the planes in a local airspace. We could apply that mentality to a large fleet of little vehicles that you can actually move more people in less space with less energy and less cost because the vehicle is smaller. If I'm just building a four person vehicle, you know, my family or you and I, if, if I wanted to accommodate a vehicle that can accommodate up to four people, well, my vehicle is now much smaller than a train. And if my vehicle is smaller, my infrastructure is also smaller. I don't need a 15 meter wide railway corridor. I might need a one and a half meter wide or two meter wide roadway. Now I also get into a private ride. I can make it on demand. I can make it point to point. All these technologies can be applied now that could never be applied before because what it requires is a high fidelity of control, robotics, autonomy, all these things that are sort of new inventions over the last 10, 20, 30 years, maybe not even that far back, that allow us now to say, you know what, we don't need train tracks that steer the train, we can steer the vehicle ourselves. 
we don't need a system of 100 trains. We can have 1,000, 10,000 pods, vehicles. They can be electric. They actually can be autonomous on a closed roadway. That technology has been around for a while. Open road technology is harder, but on a closed roadway, um, you can do that. And now you can actually orchestrate a system that is much lower cost because you just shrunk everything down. And so your costs just shrink. But your value proposition has gone up because it's not pre-scheduled. It's a private ride. It could be point to point or closer to point to point because if your vehicle is smaller, your stations or your boarding zones also shrink. And if they shrink, you can build more of them because they take up less cost and less space. And so are we getting point to point? We can get closer to it. Nobody wants to go to a train station, but people want to go to an office building, for example. That's where they work. And now let's talk about energy, and then I'll circle back to costs. If I'm moving a smaller vehicle, I'm using less energy per unit person. And if I could control the, the closed infrastructure to such a degree that I could guarantee continuous flow, meaning the vehicle never stops until it gets to your destination, no interchanges, no intersections, all that is gone. I just have a dedicated path, a virtual guideway from my starting point to my destination. And I never stop. My average speed is my cruising speed. So I go from average speeds in cities that are less than 10 miles per hour to maybe 30 miles per hour, maybe 40, whatever my cruising speed is, that is also my average speed because I'm never stopping. I'm going to get you there very, very quickly, but at a very low energy budget. And that allows me to have very low operating costs. And it turns out if you take that model that I've just kind of described for you, that the economics are so low that I can charge the exact same ticket price as a subway or, or, or a train or even a bus, same mass transit fare, but I can operate the entire system with a little bit of money left over. That's never happened before because we're now talking about a profitable public transit, mass transit service. And what I can do with that profitability is I can apply it to the capitalization of the cost of building the system in the first place. And so now we can provide a fairly high quality of service that itself is financially self-sustaining. And so the forcing function of a business now applies, which is the more people I move, the more money I make. So I want to serve more people, which is what a society wants as well, right? The more people you move, the more economic and, and value is created. And now I've come full circle to build a business that is aligned with the capitalist markets, the way our economy works, to the social good that we're trying to solve. And that is what we have done at Glideways, and it's been very hard to do. It's taken us about six years to develop this technology. It's an old idea. It's been around since the 1950s. It's actually older than I am, but no one can make it work technologically because it's very complicated. But we got it to work. And in, in summary, what we have been able to do is by shrinking the vehicle and shrinking the infrastructure and deploying quite a bit of AI and other piloting technologies, we can deliver a very high capacity system that is very small relative to a train system or a bus system in terms of the space it takes up. It is economically self-generating, self-sustaining like any other business could be or should be. So the city doesn't have to pay for it. And now one last thing, if I'm dealing with pods, vehicles that are car sized, human sized, not bus or train sized, and their vehicle uh, tires on road and not trains on tracks, we call that in vehicle steering versus infrastructure steering um, or trackless vehicles like a car is. Well, I'm no longer restricted to a line, right? A train is a line. It's a one dimensional line. Trains go up and down the line and we're forcing ourselves to move to that line. But we live in neighborhoods and we work in neighborhoods. 
but we're restricted to that because train tracks are linear. But if I re relieve myself of that constraint and I just have four rubber tires on road, the way car technology works, well, now I can go anywhere and I can build my closed network less like lines and more like a grid or a mesh or a loop or whatever I need to service entire communities. And now I'm getting much closer to what we believe is needed, which is public transit transportation for everyone everywhere. And that's just a belief we have. And I'm not trying to promote Glideways. I'm just, you know, intellectually building the framework for, for a different way of doing things. And if I may, one last thing, the energy budget is now so low relative to moving a 500 ton train, which always has to move, that even if I operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I can, the energy budget I have is low enough that I can deploy solar panels over these lanes and generate about twice as much energy over the course of a year than we consume. So we become, we have a balanced carbon budget, slightly negative in most places, not all places, but most, which allow me to offset the carbon footprint of building the system in the first place plus operations. That together is a complicated thing I've just described to you over the last couple of minutes, but that is what we believe is necessary to not just address the deficiencies we have, but really push societies forward in terms of equality, access to mobility and the economic and social growth and opportunity that comes from that. And that's how we think about it. At least that's how at Glideways, how we think about it. No, it's great. And you've sold me on, on many of the arguments that you've made. So how far down the road are we with this? Have you got any pilots? Are there any cities that are already using some of this technology? That's a great question. So we have designed the technology and built it through many levels of prototyping. And we have our own, we call it a Glideways transportation system already up and running and in our own facility here in the Bay Area. So we've, we've designed and of course patented the technology and we have all of our supply chain in place vehicle builders in Detroit, Michigan, and so on and so forth, right? So the technology is ready. And to your point, we are now in deep commercial discussions with multiple cities to deploy. And we think we will have our first systems up and running about three or four of them by 2025, which is actually relatively quick. Normally it takes decades to build, let's say a train system, as an example, we can do it in about two to three years, just because again, things are just smaller and easier to build. But to your point as to commercial pilots, The irony here is that we are talking about a problem we can all feel, congestion, climate crisis, and so forth. And so there's a motivation to want to do things better, I think, across the board. But when it comes to decision making, you've got the government involved, the municipality or a city or a transportation authority, right? They are the ones who, who provide transportation service. They allow a road to be built or a train system, or in our case, a glideway system to be built. Be built. And so... What we are talking about, what I just described to you is, is, while it's not a new idea, it is a new technology, to your point, right? No one, no one has one of these things. And so like with any market entry, you find that there's a stratification of risk assessment. Certain cities are willing to take risks. Other cities say, I love the idea, but I don't want to be the first customer. I want to be the 10th customer or the 100th customer. And that's why we're here in the Silicon Valley Bay Area. We have the 10th largest city in the United States here, San Jose. We have San Francisco. We have several other big cities in this area who are very open to risk. The leadership is extraordinary. And so that's why we are here. The capital is here, the talent is here, but so are the cities willing to take risks because we need a few cities to take that risk to try something new. And so we are in engagements with several cities, including the ones I've mentioned, and we believe we will be building our first probably starting next year. And like I said, up and running by 2025. But you've cut this interview with you, this discussion has caught me 
caught us at a time where we've developed the technology and proven it. We've had enough of the political uh, convincing done. And now we're going to see if we can actually build it and launch it. And what we believe is that once we have one or two, maybe three pilots up and running, which we should have in the next two to four years, depending on the timing and how it works out, that after that, we have showcases for the rest of the world to say, see, come take a ride, not in our R&D facility, which we've been doing for several years now. And Bernard, you and your viewers, if anybody wants to come take a ride, send me a note. Anytime the ride's on us, it, it's a pretty cool experience. But we need to get the public involved. And that's a hyper risk averse government uh, structure. And so we need existence proofs. We're here. Uh, we think we have cities ready to do this. And we, we're actually a few weeks away from our first several, a few months away from our first several contracts. So it's at a very exciting time for us to see if we can build it and prove it. Very good. And let's talk about some of the technology components then. You decided to go with electric. Yes. Why is that? And hybrid, is that other question? So when you think of energy usage, you have to also think about the propulsion technology that uses the energy. So if you use gas, diesel or gasoline, you have a gas engine and all the stuff that comes with it. And it turns out that electric propulsion, electric vehicles, as far from an engineering point of view, they're the purest form of energy usage or conversion I've ever seen. You have a battery and you have an electric motor and that's it. Yes, you have a computer somewhere that controls it, one moving part or maybe a few relative to an engine that has thousands of moving parts and oils and hoses and steam. And oh my gosh, it's a huge cacophony of, 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 a, of a mess. And so when you think of that, you want something in public transportation that is reliable, consistent, and doesn't require an enormous maintenance overhead. Because again, your costs go up, your complexity goes up, your risk of failure goes up. So just from the pure engineering aspects of the battery electric vehicles are the place to be. Secondly, cost of energy is now so much cheaper than cost of fuel, diesel or otherwise, that economically energy, is, electricity is just the cheapest regardless of where it comes from. And if you add solar, well, then it's even cheaper on top of that. And so for us, we're not trying to go very far. Urban environments aren't that big relative to countries or states. So we don't have a range challenge that you might have with a, a luxury electric vehicle like a Tesla. And we're not trying to race really fast. We don't need to go very fast. So we're not trying to build a performance electric Porsche equivalent. And so that puts us in a place where economically and technologically, battery electric vehicles are like the most obvious solution. They're the simplest, easiest to maintain, cheapest to operate, and actually cheapest to build because we don't need to go fast or far. That is just the obvious choice. And the moment you talk about hybridization, well, the question is, what are you compromising for? And again, we're not trying to go very far or very fast. So there's really no need to think about that. And then one last thing, supply chains are a big deal. When you start talking about fleets of thousands of vehicles, right, which is what we're talking about here, um, or even more potentially, your supply chain becomes a big deal. And, and you may have heard in the news, your viewers may have heard in the news that battery supply chains are becoming an issue. Well, that's true if you're trying to pack a lot of power in a battery, which you know, high-end electric vehicles are trying to do. But again, we're not trying to go fast or far, so we can buy the, the most basic kind of common denominator batteries that are out there. We're fairly agnostic to that. And so we don't really have the supply chain sensitivities in this kind of a non-performance model of electric vehicle that we're talking about that you might have if you're building a Volkswagen or a BMW or a Tesla style car. And so we're actually free from the cost premiums or the supply chain bottlenecks that the rest of the industry faces. So for us, this is the most obvious place to be. And you talked about having a 
dedicated lane for those vehicles, at least in most parts, so they can drive autonomously. Don't you think that we will have autonomous vehicles that can just drive anywhere among people-driven cars? Totally. Um, I, I believe and hope that we will have them soon. We can debate whether it's three years away or 30 years away or somewhere in between. But, but yes, absolutely, they're coming. But again, the proliferation of autonomous vehicle technology on open roads will not solve the traffic problem or the congestion problem or any of the problems we've talked about because of infrastructure bottlenecks like a pedestrian crossing, right? It goes right back to the basics. And so what we believe is a, is a hy hybrid future, but not hybrid gas and electric hybrid of open and closed road autonomy. So our vehicles, our technology is based on battery electric autonomous vehicles on closed dedicated infrastructure. And that's so that we can move huge volumes of people more than a road can handle. But you don't need that everywhere. You know, cities need that. And maybe yeah, here in Silicon Valley, some urban environments need that. And so we have designed our system so that we can upgrade our vehicles from version one to version two where version two deploys the open road autonomous technology that I believe is coming, that most people believe is coming at some point so that our vehicles can use the dedicated closed lanes where they're needed to zip you into the center of town or the financial district or, or whatever the scenario is. But if you live out where, where I live, which is nowhere near a city, those vehicles can leave the closed network and use the open roads to come up to my front door, pick me up, drive on the open roads back to the nearest access point, and then leverage the closed infrastructure to zip me into the center of town. So that's how we think of an autonomous hybrid approach, which is another reason why we like vehicles for rubber tires, car-sized vehicles versus trains is another example, because you have that backwards compatibility. But in a world where there is no autonomous technology yet, which today is the case, you can't go buy an autonomous vehicle, we can still deliver on that fundamental value proposition that cities so desperately need, which is a mass public transit solution uh, that is fully accessible to everyone at you know, low cost and all the other things we spent a little bit of time talking about earlier. And so we can start with the technology available today, provide a hugely valuable service. By the way, just go back to the opportunity space. 4% of cities that need a mass transit solution have one. If I can produce something that is one-tenth the size one-tenth the cost, but also financially self-sustaining so that the city pays nothing, the opportunity space is to go from 4% to 30%, maybe 50%, I hope 80 or 90 or 100%. I mean, this moves the needle on the human experience, but take it a step further, half the human population lives in an urban environment. And so now that duality of closed roads and open roads becomes very important if I want to ser service all those people, right, with a reliable, always there, always on low cost, safe transportation service that is not stymied by traffic congestion. And we believe yeah, that, that is the ultimate opportunity. I completely agree with you. The challenge, I guess, then becomes an infrastructure project, right? Because we still need to redesign our cities. We need to decide which roads to close, which might in most cities be a huge challenge. So how do we overcome that? This is the hardest part. So the technology I've described earlier is hard and it's taken a bunch of PhDs many years to solve the algorithms and the software to do what we've talked about doing. Um, but really the harder part is what you just described, which is where are you gonna build these dedicated roads, right? How are you gonna do that? Particularly in cities that already exist, which is let's face it, most cities. And so here we have a couple layered problems that we believe we've solved to make it less painful to do this. The first, is our lanes are one and a half meters wide or five feet wide. Well, that's smaller than a car lane. 
It's about the size of a pedestrian or a bicycle lane. So first of all, just the infrastructure we're talking about is bicycle lane size, not open road size, uh, road size. Secondly, we never go on public roads. We would never take away a pedestrian lane, a bike lane, or a car lane, because good luck with those politics, right? As you described, no one's going to want to close the road. People still use roads. And so we would never do that in the same way trains don't go where roads go. We also don't go where roads necessarily go. The third thing is we need to be hyper, hyper flexible. When you're car sized, this is going to sound very pedantic, but it's, it matters. When you are car sized, you are as maneuverable as a car. You can take a 90 degree turn or a tight turn and so forth. A bus or a train has a huge turning radius. It cannot take a 90 degree turn because it's big. Why is that important? When you are looking for what's called the exclusive right of way or the right of way in a city of where do you build these lanes, flexibility is highly important because you have existing people and geography and things that you have to take into account. The way a train solves this problem is we're going to go underground or we're going to bore through a mountain or bulldoze that building and, you know, that, that's, we think that's crazy. We would rather have a hybrid flexible system that allows us to find bike lane size right of ways through a city if they exist. Mm-hmm. And in many cases they do. If we need to go above the road, we can do that as well and just follow the road, but we'll just elevate it. And economically we can do that and we're relatively small. So elevated trains, very expensive and physically enormous, just hard to do. And they're noisy and, and people don't want that. We tried it mid-century, but many of them have disappeared because of all those problems. We're much smaller, we're entirely quiet, uh, and we're not expensive. We can self-fund the elevated infrastructure. So in some places, elevated infrastructure makes sense. We can also go underground, tunneled in the extreme or trenched, where we just go under a roadway, not in a tunnel, but just trenched, you know, cut and cover beneath it. And really, all we're talking about is building a Lego box of different infrastructure elements on the ground, above ground, different versions of below ground, and they're all modular. So when we sit with a city, which we've now done 27 times, we have 27 projects across the United States and in Japan that we're working on right now designing, we work with the city hand and glove to say, let's figure out where people live and where they work. And it's usually blobs on maps, not lines, it's people live in neighborhoods. And let's figure out the best way to connect them. And you end up with a weird spider web of of lines where, where we have the flexibility to leverage the public right of way where it exists and be less disruptive where we have to go, where we have to go above a road or underneath the road. And, and so it actually turns out that while very, very difficult and very challenging, the more flexible you are and the more hybridization you can be with your grade, is it above grade, at grade or below grade? Well, it depends on which neighborhood we're in and which road we're near or which field we're going through, that you can actually construct and leverage public land that is already there in highly efficient ways. And when you do that, now you have the question of, do we do that? Difficult, but, but easier than building a train system that costs tens of billions of dollars, loses money in perpetuity, requires you to dig up the street for 10 or 20 years, bulldoze all, all sorts of buildings and have 10 stations. You know, So it, it's sort of a lesser of two evils in many instances, but it turns out that like in San Jose, our favorite project at the moment and the leadership of that city is just incredible. We found a bunch of routes to connect the international airport to the train station, to to many campuses of industries and retail without ever having to leave the public right of way. That's extraordinary. And that's only because we're small and highly flexible and we're agnostic as to whether we are on the ground or above ground or slightly below ground. And that just allows you to be flexible. And so I'm not saying this is an easy problem. You've you've hit the nail on the head. This is the hardest problem of the problem set to solve. 
but it is very doable. It just requires working in partnership with the city. And that's exactly our, our approach. Interesting. So I guess having the dedicated lane then also means you can put charging infrastructure like solar panels in place that would continuously charge the vehicle. Is that part of it? We, we, we do. So it's a little different in that our vehicles don't need in-service charging. We can buy really cheap batteries and the vehicle can operate the whole day on its own. What we have is a garage where our vehicles are stored and they're cleaned, fixed if they're broken and also charged. And so we have a garage. It's relatively small, uh, not certainly not a train yard or a bus yard. It's a relatively small parking garage because we're car sized. And that's where our vehicles just stay until people need them. And we dribble vehicles out into the system as people need service. And then we either leave the vehicles at the, our, our boarding zones or we bring them back home. And when the batteries are low enough in the vehicles, the vehicles bring themselves home to be recharged. So the charging becomes a much less distributed model, which is expensive because now you have to distribute the charging infrastructure and the power infrastructure and the safety of all the high power uh, electronics. You can put that all into a building. And that's again, because we're not going very far. Again, cities are not that big relative to, to hundreds of miles. Right? We're talking about much smaller regions. And because we have continuous flow on our lanes, we don't have to compensate for multiple stops by going very fast. And so again, our power profile is just such that we, we can afford to charge once a day or twice a day in a garage rather than distribute the charging. And that allows us to do one last thing, if, you may, if I may, which is we're going from lines to spider webs. Mesh network is a, the, the more accurate uh, way to talk about how we service communities in a disaggregated model, right? You're not restricted to train lines. You can have distributed models. Now, suppose I build a city, a, a system in city A, and I build one in community, the community adjacent to it. And we, let's say we expand the system over time. We start small, people like it. We add a little bit more, service some more neighborhoods. And that spider web network gets a little bit bigger. At some point, we can interconnect them. And now a vehicle can leave city A and go to any destination in city B without, without being the wiser. And that's back to the service quality, right? Service quality isn't just private vehicle and on demand. It's are there more destinations for me to go to that are interesting to me? And that is the network effect. If you think about the internet back in the early days, the more websites that were on the internet, the more valuable the internet became for everybody already connected to the internet. And that's the network effect we believe at work here too, which is the more destinations we add, the more valuable this network becomes. And so interoperability or backwards compatibility of adjacent glideway systems, meshing them together seamlessly is a huge part of that value proposition we believe. And we fundamentally believe that service quality drives demand and the more destinations there are, the better the quality of service should be. And that's just another way of, of how the infrastructure discussion we had a moment ago enables that to happen because you're making it not just cheaper or free to the city, but you're, it's a smaller and less disruptive, still disruptive. We have to deal with that. But do you want to deal with crushing traffic congestion and, and not getting to work on time and, and all the problems with that? Or do you want to have opportunity to access affordable housing and employment and education and care and commerce? And most people will tell you, yeah, traffic jams are terrible. <laughs> we need to resolve that in some way, shape or form. And we believe we have at least for now a pretty good, pretty good and exciting solution. Do you feel that we will have the same transportation challenges in the future as, as we've had in the past with more and more people working from home? So maybe this will alleviate some of the rush hour traffic. I think that is a great question. I, I love this question because 
cultures change, technologies change, and behaviors change. We the last two years of pandemic. I mean, you're catching me in my living room or my 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 home office, right? Rather than my my work office. So so I do think that there is going to be um, a lot of change for certain kinds of workers. Now that said, there's an enormous service industry that requires people to to be on site. We know that we saw that in the pandemic, right? That despite a a, a you know a life threatening pandemic, enormous numbers of people still had to go to work all the time, and that doesn't change. And neither does your desire to connect and go out. And you know you you have to fundamentally believe that value comes from being able to physically move, whether it's to buy things or see people or engage with people, go to a museum or just go to work. And even here in California, which is a very weird microcosm, and I understand it's a bubble, even here people are wanting to go back to work and we're right back into the same traffic jams we had before the pandemic. And so as teleconference technology gets better, are we gonna be more flexible about, do I stay home today or go to work? Totally, and I think that's great. But the need to physically congregate to create value or just to do your job itself isn't gonna go away. For education, it's not gonna go away. For socialization and commerce, it's not gonna go away. So the need to move people or goods, labor and goods, if you want to get into basic economics, isn't going to change. And we still sleep at night and are awake during the day. And so you still have that eight to 12 hours where a lot of people are going to be doing their moving. And even if it's not just in the morning, but it's throughout the day, you still have traffic jams. And, and this isn't a thesis. This isn't an idea. Look around the city right now. We're quasi in a pandemic, quasi. So it's not back to normal. But even now we have traffic jams in every continent on earth, in every city on earth. Mm. No city has now said, hey, thank gosh, we have no more traffic jams. So that problem, I don't think, is going to go away. And, and you know, drones will, will solve some of the delivery, right, of, of package delivery. But, you know, drones or, or flying vehicles aren't really going to solve the problem of I have to move several hundred thousand people in the space of two hours and get them into Manhattan. Because where are you going to land all these vehicles? The rooftops and the elevators and the buildings can't handle that. And so... You can put an airspace near a city, but how are you going to get from the, air, the landing strip or the, 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 the flying taxi pad into the city? Same problem, right? So these problems aren't really going to go away, I don't think. Not, not when we cluster people together in cities, which is what we do uh, as a society. So I guess part of your competition is the, the companies like Uber that would run autonomous vehicles on demand. So we have the complete on-demand mobile network that actually gives us vehicles that come straight to our house and deliver us to wherever we want to go. I guess the challenge for them is that they have to do the, the zebra crossings and tackle the infrastructure that we have in the cities. So is your view that you will have a hybrid system where we have the glideways and the autonomous cars on the normal roads? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a, a, a delivery a ride hailing service like Uber or Lyft or any of these companies, they're going to be stuck in the same traffic jam your private car would be or mine. So, so they're not able to offer anything that your own car can't service and off, they're awfully expensive. We're talking about 20, 30, 40, $50 for short trips, even more for longer trips. So you have a high cost premium and the service quality is no different than your own car because you're still stuck in the same traffic jam because as you said, you're still dealing with the same infrastructure bottlenecks or traffic jams that are caused by more people using the road than the road can handle. So, so that's not really going to solve the problem. We do see a hybrid world, as I said before, where, where autonomous vehicles or even just regular Ubers will work great to bring you from your home to the nearest access point or station, 
you know? So I completely agree with that. Um, and that's why what we want to do is go into that autonomous taxi service world with our own vehicle. So you don't even have to interchange from an Uber from your home to a station, get out and then get a vehicle. We'd like one seamless trip. And once our vehicles technologically can leave the closed network and go on open roads the way you were suggesting, we intend to do that so that we can pick you up at your home if you don't live in a city, if you live in the suburbs, and zip you right into your office or wherever your destination is without ever stopping once, uh, once you get onto the closed network. And so can we do all that with a mass transit fare? $5, $4, $6, $3? We know we can. That's the one thing that this, this is to me an economic story as much as it is a user experience and a technology story. Technology is enabler. Uh, user experience is the convincing, getting you to use it, but the economics makes it work. If I can give you an Uber-like nonstop service from your home to your office for $5 or $4, and Uber can do the same thing for $30 and be stuck in traffic, I think I can win. And I think I can move more people, and therefore, it's not about winning, it's about creating more value right, for, for, for our society, and I think that's what we can do. Fundamentally, Moving the human race forward requires opportunity, social and economic opportunity. And we believe, it, I believe, that social and economic opportunity comes from ubiquitous access to mobility that is affordable, reliable, and safe. And affordability is so important. By the way, so is physical accessibility. Our vehicles are designed for double wide baby strollers, wheelchairs, bicycles. Micromobility is a big deal. So we need to take all that into account. My team is actually from Apple, Tesla, Google, and other companies where our approach is we focus on the user experience first, refine it to an art form to a degree, then apply engineering to make it work rather than the other way around. And I think that's a big part of it. Great. I wish you all the best of luck with this project because I think it's super important. One of the biggest challenges we're facing as the world. And this sounds like a very good solution. So what are your predictions of the future transportation system? Let's look 20 or 30 years into the future. What mix are you seeing? What are you hoping for? I'm so excited for it. Uh, every angle you take, every bias one has and applies to that question, what does the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years look like? It is going to be science fiction come to life. And, and that just, for me, has me very excited. I think we're going to see pure electric propulsion. So gone is the noise and the toxicity and the horrific geopolitics. We haven't even talked about that. That come from an addiction to fossil fuels that are no longer economically or technologically required. Let us put gas engines into the dustbin of history as mm. soon as we can. I'm trying to do that. I think we will see that over the next decade or two. The world will be infinitely better off for that. That's number one. Number two, the answer to your question is actually be best answered by so many science fiction movies over the last several decades. Because as I said to you before, this idea of a ubiquitous pod-based autonomous transportation system that can move also high capacity has been around since before I was born. And so you can think of all these movies Minority Report is one of my favorites, where there's a pod scene where I think the world will look some version like that. Maybe not vehicles driving up and down buildings necessarily, but, but all the other aspects of it. Sure. So I think we'll see a world where fundamentally the experience will be better, but our lives will be better. And, and, and here's the one that matters a lot to people, I think, in any city, in any country, but particularly here. We have an affordability housing crisis. We have people on the streets because housing... Affordable housing, while not that far away, is inaccessible because of traffic commute times required to get to and from affordable housing. Mm. 
and that completely distorts and crushes out uh, economies of people, classes of people, and, and completely distorts an economy. And so when you get into services that actually start to solve the problem of ubiquitous access of low cost, reliable mobility that can go farther than traffic congestion allows you to suffer in traffic, you start to equalize access to opportunity and equity of opportunity is to me, the one thing that our societies, the Western societies still have the greatest amount of work to do. And while mobility isn't the end all be all, I think it's a big part of it. If I can give everyone access to affordable housing, employment, education, care without the cost of an Uber or the inhibition of hours of commute time or the lack of safety of some train systems currently and, and all those things, if I can start to solve all that, you start to move the needle in the direction of equity. And I think that is the biggest uh, benefit that we'll see over the next several decades. Very good. That has been super fascinating. And I very much agree with everything you've said. I think we need to electrify, we need to deliver an on-demand service that delivers a great user experience. I think you have a solution that could solve some of those challenges. So Good luck. Thank you so much for sharing this with all of us. And anyone who ever wants to re-listen to this conversation, head to my YouTube channel where you can re-watch this conversation as well as many other fascinating conversations on future trends in technology and business. Thank you very much, Mark. Bernard, thank you too. I appreciate the discussion. This was fun. Come take a ride anytime you're out here. Great. Thank you.